Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Operating in the background to the war in Ukraine, a go a global shift in geopolitical power is taking place. Well underway prior to Russia's February invasion, a good part of that transformation is centered in the vast Eurasian landmass of which Ukraine is a vital part. Joining us today to share some of his broader global perspectives, a big picture context to the Ukraine war, a level of understanding that goes well beyond narrow focus, a narrow focus on Vladimir Putin, is the UW-Madison historian Alfred McCoy. A specialist in modern Southeast Asian history, Al McCoy is the author of numerous works on U.S. imperial policy and practice, European colonialism in Southeast Asia, the illegal global drug trade, Central Intelligence Agency covert operations, and the question of torture. He's the author of, among a number of other titles, in the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power, and most recently, his sweeping overview of the modern world to govern the wor- globe, world orders, and catastrophic change. Today, we'll be drawing from his recent essay, What Difference Does a War Make? The Geopolitics of the New Cold War, which appeared recently at the Tom Dispatch website, uh, Al Al McCoy, welcome back, of course, always, to WORT. Great to be here, Alan. Thanks for having me on. You know, Al, the the focus of much of your recent work has centered upon the contest of great powers, of imperial powers on the global stage, of, in a word, the great game of geopolitics. For those of our listeners unfamiliar with the term, what do you mean when you use it? Geopolitics is an incredibly useful concept, uh, and it has real analytic power, but it's also kind of slippery, kind of mushy around the edges, and it's very difficult to get your hands on it and use it. And this is one of those cases in which an historical perspective is very useful because it's through the study of historical cases, you get a sense of the continuity beneath the ever-shifting diplomatic alliances and the constancy of economic change, there is a substrate of geographical continuity. So geopolitics, in short, is a a strategy for the management of an empire. And empires are unique. On the surface, they're enormously powerful. Think of the dozen or so U.S. aircraft carriers on the high seas, their thundering jets, the mere sight and might of these great ships and the armada surrounding them. Uh, But beneath that surface of power, empires are enormously fragile. Uh, A nation state has a self-contained capacity for national defense. We've been seeing that in Ukraine. You know, a great, uh, basically an empire, the Russian empire of, uh, you know, 178 million people, the biggest country in the world, attacks Ukraine, which is a medium-sized country of 44 million people, and Ukraine can readily mobilize its population and its resources for an effective defense. So that's, you know, every nation state can readily mount a defense, but once you go beyond your boundary and project your power, particularly overseas, those operations are always very risky, very prone to, 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 to not just defeat, but debacle. And so geopolitics, is, if you will, is a, a strategy to give an empire a fighting chance of success and survival. And to the, the grandfather of modern geopolitics, and it's, it's always good to come back to him uh, because all of our players on the world stage are acolytes of, of Sir Halford Mackinder. And back in 1904, Sir Halford Mackinder 
published an article in the Royal Geographical Journal in which he said that Europe and Africa and Asia are not three continents. They are a unified landmass that he called the World Island. And then he said that the epicenter for control of this landmass, which today, by the way, is home to 70% of the world's population, 70% of the world's population lives in that tri-continental landmass that we can call the World Island. And the, the, the strategic fulcrum, the Archimedean point, if you will, for control of this vast landmass is in the great steppes of Central Asia, the great empty zone. He said he called this the pivot region. And <clears throat> he then boiled all this down into a memorable maxim. He called this pivot region, by the way, the heartland, okay, the heartland of, of, of Central Asia. And he said in his, his memorable maxim, who controls the heartland uh, controls the world island. Who controls the world island controls the world. And so that's what we're witnessing today in Ukraine. And we can explain, we'll come back to it in the end, how geopolitics informs our understanding of what's really at stake in this war. So you've written, of course, and you just touched on it, that geopolitics uh, is necessary, a necessary grasp of geopolitics is needed to understand the deeper meaning of the dev devastating war in Ukraine. Take that a little bit further. Is that what you, do you believe that's what propelled uh, the invasion? It's, it's an under, uh, what propelled the invasion? No, I mean, that's Putin's own willful desire to recover uh, the lost Soviet empire. He has been known to say that the breakup of the Soviet Union is the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. And that is a century that has a lot of competition for that title. There's a lot of tragedies in it. That, that's a very blood-stained century. Okay. And so he's trying to recover what he regards as the, the, the core of ancient Rus. And, and you know, that's Ukraine was the, the seat of modern Russia. And so he has this aspiration for recovering if not ancient Rus, uh, uh, or, or then maybe much of the Soviet empire through informal and formal domination. So that's, I mean, I think that's the driver, but, but what is going to, uh, you know, uh, ultimately attach real lasting significance to Putin's attempt to conquer Ukraine is the underlying geopolitics. Okay, there, there are some parallels between the old Cold War and the new that I think gives a, give us an appreciation of what's at stake. Uh, <clears throat> during the, the Cold War, the United States uh, wound up at the end of World War II uh, being the first power in a thousand years to control both axial ends of Eurasia, okay? Uh, through our, our presence in Japan and Korea in the East and the NATO alliance in the West. And initially, the NATO alliance was an alliance of a, a dozen European powers. It was mainly a political alliance it was basically focused on checking Soviet expansion to Eastern Europe. It, it was a regional alliance. And then in October 1949, you know, Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party sharked the world by, by seizing control of China and standing up in Beijing in Tiananmen Square, Mao Zedong proclaimed on October 1st, 1949, the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And this then created an enormous opportunity for Russia to, to expand, to become, through an alliance with China, the dominant power in Eurasia. Mao made a, one of the first things he did, you know, he announced the People's Republic of China in October. In December, he was in Moscow for two months negotiating a treaty of alliance with Joseph Stalin. And, and, and you know, after weeks of very painful negotiations, Stalin finally gave up his territorial concessions in China, agreed to an alliance with China, and then Stalin played upon that alliance uh, by getting Mao to send the Chinese troops into Korea, which was a, 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 a hemorrhaging of China's manpower and its fiscal resources in that war. Okay, uh, And um, at that moment, the United States was suddenly faced with a sharp new reality. The NATO alliance, which was essentially a regional alliance and focused on Eastern Europe, suddenly had to become a global alliance 
because China and Russia united, dominated Eurasia, including that pivot region, that heartland that Mackinder talked about. And this then threatened the U.S. capacity for hegemony on a global level. Washington was well aware of this. So what Washington did was right away, we signed uh, four mutual defense pacts with Japan, later a bit later with South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia. And we got a, 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 a string of military bases, more than 100 military bases, stretching all the way from Japan down to Australia. And throughout the Cold War, this was the key geopolitical fulcrum of U.S. global defense. Those bases gave us the capacity to defend one continent, North America, and to dominate another con continent, Eurasia, right? Now that's, now then what happened, of course, in the Cold War, if you want to summarize this very complex conflict that spans four decades and five continents, is that the Sino-Soviet split came along in the 1960s. And when that happened, there was this really violent, literally violent rupture between these, these once two allied communist powers that they were really on the brink of war. China built a massive underground city in Beijing because they were expecting nuclear attacks from the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, at this, uh, when, 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 when Russia broke with China, suddenly it was geopolitically isolated and it spent the rest of the three decades of the Cold War trying to break out in Africa, in Latin America, in the Middle East, and fatally Afghanistan. Uh, and so that, that's the kind of geopolitics of the Cold War. Once Russia was isolated because of that break with China, we then cultivated China, built up alliance with them economically, we recognized them diplomatically, uh, they got the seat of the UN, etc. We brought them into the global economy, thinking in our terms didn't turn out that way. Okay, so, so we cultivated that split, right? Uh, and, and we isolated Russia, and then we all we had to do was sit back and wait for the Soviet economy to implode, and for one of these foreign adventures that the, that the, that the Russian communist leadership was staging in Afghanistan to go, to, to bleed them literally, as Gorbachev said, become a bleeding wound that bled the, 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 the life force out of the Soviet Red Army, <clears throat> okay? So, now we're in a situation with a, a new Cold War, and there are many parallels. Just as Mao went to Moscow in 1949-1950 to negotiate with a very powerful Stalin, so this time in February of this year, as you mentioned, Alan, in your introduction, Putin came to Beijing at the start of the Winter Olympics, and he came as a supplicant wanting China's diplomatic support for his Ukrainian gambit. And the two of them released a stunning statement, a 5,200-word declaration in which they uh, essentially proclaimed the strength of their alliance, saying it was superior to the old Cold War alliance, that there were no secrets, uh, there were no hidden areas, no reservations, that it was a complete alliance. And very importantly, they committed themselves in this alliance to continue to develop the, the petroleum resources in the Eurasian landmass, each of them individually and jointly, in order to provide a sound economic basis for their alliance. They condemned NATO, and they condemned similar pacts in the Pacific. Uh, and it was that alliance that gave Putin, if you will, the diplomatic cover to attack Ukraine. And he held off, and they met in Putin and Xi Jinping, China's president, met in Beijing on, I think, February 4th, and uh, China made it very clear that they didn't want the invasion happening during the Olympics. So Putin had to hold off for the whole month of February, and then he invaded Putin. Uh, by the time Putin invaded, at the end of February, it was already the mud season in Ukraine, and that's why his tanks got all bogged down and they couldn't capture Kiev. So it was a substantial strategic sacrifice that had long-term uh uh, diplomatic advantages for Putin. And, <clears throat> you know, if you will, that was the first sign of this, of this recreation of this, this classic Cold War alliance. The latest sign came a little more than a week ago in Madrid when the NATO powers all came together. President Biden was there. All the, the leaders of NATO were there. And they issued a, a declaration uh, that, that really resonates with the, 
the old Cold War language. They condemned Russian expansionism. They branded China a challenge. And that declaration also condemned the alliance between these two powers, which they said is systematically seeking to attack the rules-based international order, which is essentially the world order that the United States, the G7, and the European Union are backing. And, um, and then Putin, who was then at a parallel conference in Turkmenistan, condemned that statement saying that if people attack us, we will attack those areas from which the attacks come. And China's UN ambassador made a statement condemning NATO for seeking to revive the Cold War. So as of, I'd say, last month, the geopolitical array, the rhetoric, the language has a striking similarity to the old Cold War. You're listening to historian Alfred McCoy from the UW-Madison History Department. We're talking about the, well, the larger picture, the framework for understanding uh, the Ukraine invasion uh, and what it has wrought and what's to come. Uh, we'll be opening up the phone lines at 608-256-2001, extension 9, uh, at about half past the hour. So if you want to join us with a question, a comment, uh, a mediation, if you will, you can uh, give us a call. Again, 608-256-2001, extension number 9. Alfred McCoy, you've written about the a new geopolitical balance that has resulted from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What are some of its elements? One of the most fundamental and immediate reactions has been what Putin calls its, his pivot to the East. Uh, Putin has had this, what he calls a Eurasian strategy. And it's significant that when NATO was meeting in Madrid, he was in Turk uh, Turkmenistan meeting with five Central Asian powers, okay? So he's cultivating what used to be former Soviet Central Asia, the stands, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, et cetera, Tajikistan, on and on, okay? He, he, those former so Soviet republics known colloquially as the stands, he's cultivating them as a zone and they're rich in petrochemicals, oil and gas. And so, you know, there's lots to, to work with them. Um, and then he's also, if you will, Kind of detaching the Russian export economy from Western Europe and shifting it east. So instead of exporting oil to Europe, because Europe is considering is, is going to impose an embargo on Russian oil imports, he's now redirecting those oil imports to India. Again, sort of this pivot to the east that he keeps talking about. And China is the world's largest consumer of wheat. And so Russia is now beginning to shift its own wheat exports to China as well. China is a major producer, but it's had some bad harvests and there's a real high demand for wheat in China. Uh, and so what, what you're looking at, I think, is that Russia is shifting its vast export economy. Russia is the world's top exporter of wheat and fertilizer. It's second world's second largest producer of oil and the world's third largest producer of natural gas. And so, China's role in the global economy is a producer of these raw commodities, and it's now shifting its markets as much as it can to the east. And this then, of course, complements China's geopolitical strategy because it makes Russia, if you will, economically subordinate to China, and it consolidates China's position in Eurasia. Since 2013, when President Xi Jinping announced what was called the Belt and Road Initiative, China has been expending about $1.2 trillion, the biggest aid program in human history, 10 times the size of the Marshall Plan that the U.S. used to rebuild Europe after World War II. China has begun investing this in about 70 nations in this world island of Europe, Asia, and Africa in order to build a, a steel infrastructure of roads, rails, and oil and gas pipelines stretching across the whole of the Eurasian landmass. So Putin's shift to the East geopolitically is consolidating China's 
position and its control over Eurasia. And the, the result is going to be, I think, maybe comparable to what happened during the Cold War. Remember I said that at, in, in the 1960s, the Sino-Soviet split left Russia, left the Soviet Union geopolitically isolated in, on the Eurasian landmass. China, by consolidating, by allowing the Russian consolidating its control of the Eurasian landmass, by breaking that fulcrum of U.S. geopolitical power slowly uh, on that Pacific littoral running from Japan to the Philippines to Australia, is going to, is, it has a long-term strategy of slowly breaking the U.S. dominance over Eurasia and breaking the U.S. chain of bases along the Pacific littoral. And if that happens, geopolitically, China will become the dominant power, not only in the Eurasian landmass, but remembering Sir Halford Mackinder's maxim, who controls the heartland controls the world island, who controls the world island controls the world. And everything we know about the last 500 years of imperial history, you know, every major imperial power over the last 500 years has struggled to, its rise has been coincident with its control over the Eurasian landmass, and its decline has, has coincided with its declining control over that same landmass. So what this means, I think, over the longer term is the continuing rise of China in a strong geopolitical position and the potential decline of U.S. global hegemony. How about the other side of the equation? What has the, uh, take a little further off of your last point, uh, what has it meant for uh, American, U.S. hegemony globally? After all, it's been able to reinvigorate the NATO alliance it's even, uh, and so on, whipped uh, erstwhile allies into line. Everybody's joined, uh, well, not everybody, but at least the Western, a good part of, if not all of Western Europe uh, has joined in, in um, U.S.-led NATO concerns, uh, shipping weapons and so on. Has the U.S. gained from it? Hmm. Well, here, um, if Sir Halvard McKinder is the kind of the grandfather of modern geopolitics, in the United States, one of the fathers of the practice of modern geopolitics was Zygmunt Brzezinski, the national security advisor to President Jimmy Carter and a, 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 a devotee of McKinder's theories. And um, in the late 1990s, at the end of the Cold War, when the U.S. stood astride the planet like a, a titan of Greek legend, in which, uh, in, at a time when, you know, people were writing about the end of history, in which the United States liberal capitalist democratic order would sweep all before it, and and all for for all time, this was the fate of the world to follow the U.S. model of a globalized capitalist economy. Okay, that that triumphalist moment. Zygmunt Brzezinski actually turned to geopolitics, turned to McKinder's theory, and he said, um, there are three conditions that the United States must maintain to preserve its global power. First, it must maintain its perch in Western Europe, he meant the NATO alliance. Second, he must, it must make sure that a single, a single power does not control the vast interior of Eurasia. This, of course, was his way of talking about Mackinder's heartland, okay? And he said then, finally, the United States must preserve its string of bases along the Pacific littoral. So if you think about what we've been talking about with Ukraine, let's look at Brzezinski's checklist and see how we're doing. Well, have we preserved our perch in Western Europe with the NATO alliance? Clearly, the NATO alliance is stronger than ever before. It's expanded long time Neutral nations, Finland and Sweden, have now accepted invitations to join the alliance, greatly extending Putin's defensive frontier all the way up into the vast Nordic countries, extending it well over a thousand miles. Okay, so that's a that's a major strengthening in the part of the United States, particularly after the Trump years, when it looked like if Trump had been reelected, he would pull out of NATO and the alliance would have collapsed. Um, the the next the next thing is what about the prevention of, the, of a single entity, a single power dominating 
the vast interior of Eurasia. Well, clearly, that hasn't happened. The dynamics of this war, of the Ukraine war, have meant that Putin's economic and political pivot to the East as a subordinate power to China has strengthened China's dominance and control over that vast interior space of Eurasia, uh, Mackinder's heartland, Brzezinski's pivot region. And if geopolitics obtains, that means that China's position dominating Eurasian landmass, home to 70% of the world's population and productivity, will give it such strength that almost by natural law, commerce and global power will flow towards Beijing. The third criteria for Brzezinski was preservation of those offshore bases. And that's pretty shaky. Uh, <clears throat> there are four key players in that, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia. The Philippines has just elected uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who follows his predecessor's foreign policy of being friendly to Beijing, critical of the U.S. alliance, although they maintain the U.S. alliance. So they're moving slowly into Beijing's orbit. Uh, and this is the second administration in a row in the Philippines that's adopted that foreign policy. So China looks like through its, through its economic, dominant economic position in Asia Pacific is translating that economic dominance into military hegemony as well, and ultimately has a good chance of breaking that chain of U.S. bases running down the Pacific littoral. Again, you're listening to historian Alfred McCoy from the UW-Madison History Department. We're talking about the geopolitics of the Ukraine war uh, and much, much more. Give us a call at 256-608-256-2001, extension 9, if you care to join in the conversation with a question, a comment, an observation. Again, 608-256-2001, extension 9. <clears throat> so you've touched on it, but I want to go a little deeper. What has Russia's invasion of Ukraine meant for the Chinese uh, short term and longer term? That is Sure. Uh, short term, um, it means that um, Russia has begun increasing its shipments of natural gas and oil and wheat to China. Uh, this is critical uh, for China's energy security and its food security. As I said, China's had a very bad harvest year. It's the world's largest consumer of wheat, and Russia is the world's largest exporter of wheat. So these supplies that normally would move through the Black Sea into the Mediterranean and then across North Africa and then down into East Africa and providing much of the, of, of the carbohydrate for the African continent are now being shifted towards, towards China. Uh, and uh, this means that China gains food security and energy security. So geopolitically, it increases the integration of Russia's vast petrochemical complex with China's enormous industrial consumption of those same goods. Now, uh, looking to the long term, this, this short-term geopolitical advantage, which seems so clever on China's part, actually I think is going to uh, have a, a long-term deleterious impact on China. Because it means that China, which right now is the world's top emitter of greenhouse gases, responsible for about 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions that are responsible for global warming, okay? That one of the most critical factors in our capacity to avoid going beyond two degrees centigrade average temperature rise is for the Chinese economy to convert to alternative energy. And what this means is that, it, that this short-term strategic advantage, this coup that China's accomplished by gaining this preferential access to Russian's petrochemical exports means that this increases China's long-term dependence upon fossil fuels and delays, possibly, the shift to alternative energy. And in effect, China is ultimately digging its own grave uh, because by 2050, which is not that long from 
No, it's, it's really just a generation from now. By 2050, you know, 27 years from now, there are estimates that <clears throat> uh, Shanghai will be underwater because of global warming. And everything we know, it's likely to come earlier than 2050. This is a city of 18 million people. This is the, the financial center. This is the economic engine that drives China. Moreover, starting about 2050, global warming or global heating will become so disastrous in the vast North China plain, currently home to 400 million people, nearly a full third of China's population is going to start experiencing almost worse than any other part of the planet, okay? Extreme heat incidents. And between 2070 and 2100, it's experienced that China, it's projected that China is going to have at least five periods of 35 degree wet bulb temperature. Now, what does that mean? A 35 degree wet bulb temperature is when the balance of heat and humidity is, is such that the human body cannot sweat. And that a healthy adult seated, not working, just seated comfortably uh, at 35 degree wet bulb temperature is dead within six hours, okay? It's, it's an unimaginable climatological event, all right? And this is going to just, you know, the combination of the coastal flooding and the incredible heating from global warming means that China's North China heartland is going to be ravaged by global warming, perhaps worse than any other comparable part of the planet with the possible exception of the Gangetic Plain in North India, <clears throat> okay? So China is literally digging its own grave long-term by pursuing this, this, this seemingly deaf, seemingly clever geopolitical strategy of gaining preferential access to Russia's petrochemical exports. Again, you're listening to historian Alfred McCoy. If you want to join us in the conversation or the question or comments, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Uh, our engineer, Megan, tells me uh, that Rich is on the line. Hi, Rich, you're on the air. Thank you. I hope this uh, question isn't too off the wall, but so far we've been talking about nation states for the most part and i'm thinking that the heads of some nation state are fabulously wealthy individuals with a lot of economic power just in terms of management of resources that's putin and russia of course but joe biden is planning a trip to saudi arabia and what i'm asking your guest is what does he think of that? What is that about? And what should we be paying attention to with regard to what traditionally has been one of the major uh, petro uh, suppliers to the entire world? Uh, thanks Thank for the you. question. Thank you, Rich. Um, yeah, I, my guess will be that Biden's main interest in going to Saudi Arabia is to get Saudi Arabia not only to expand its own oil production, but to take a lead role within the OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which is most of the world's, not all, but most of the world's petroleum exporters, to, to get them to expand their, their output. Because if they agree to do so, and they do it at a significant level, they can bring down price prices and make a dent in inflation and, uh, and uh, get Biden's, you know, uh, lackluster economic management a bit back on track, bring down inflation, reduce the cost of, of gasoline, which is a major cost for many working families that have to drive long distances to work in their cars. And so this would become not only an economic advantage for the United States, but a political advantage for Biden. And this is one of the many ways that over the long term, the, the, the Ukraine war is nothing less that I would argue than a environmental disaster because you know the the world's nations uh, china and, and the united states in particular which account for 44 percent of all of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions need to be cooperating exchanging technology prodding and pushing each other to convert to alternative energy and the the, the war in ukraine has just it's scrambled 
energy markets. It's uh, in, in, in Germany. Germany is going to actually reopen some of the dirtiest of, of sources of electrical energy. They're going to reopen coal-fired electrical plants, all right? Um, and this is going to set, it's distracting the world uh, from the very real business of converting to alternative energy at multiple levels. And Biden's you know, trip to Saudi Arabia is just one manifestation of the way the, the war in Ukraine has had this deleterious impact upon the campaign by the world's nations to cooperate in, in, in reducing their emissions and converting over the medium term uh, to alternative energy uses. It, it's, environmentally, this has been a real setback for the, the movement to stop climate change. Again, uh, Steve, we'll, we'll continue on with the callers for a moment. Uh, Steve is on the line. Hi, you're on the air. Yeah, hi, Al. Um, so, for Mr. McCoy, at the fifth annual review of what was intended as NATO's successor organization, the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, held in uh, Budapest in the late autumn of 94, there was, uh, I've heard an agreement that in return for Ukraine's unilateral relinquishing of what would have been the world's third largest uh, nuclear arsenal, the West would in return grant it the status of protectorate. Uh, this was expressed in written form uh, as the Budapest Memo of 5 December 94. The information I have is sketchy, and it seems like that uh, Budapest memoranda, memorandum itself was uh, a little fuzzy. Could, have you heard of this, or can, can you uh, elaborate? Thank you. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I can't really elaborate much on it. Um, there, the, the references are always to this is a, a non-operative agreement. This is often listed in a string of agreements that was made, have been made periodically between uh, Ukraine and Russia that are essentially non-operative, that, you know, when, um, uh, you know, diplomatic agreements require the goodwill of the parties in order to enforce and maintain them. Um, and, and and this is one of those cases when you're dealing with a very aggressive, well-armed superpower, if they choose not to honor a diplomatic agreement, there's nobody around that can stop them from breaking the agreement. Uh, again, the United States has been culpable uh, in the same way of breaking many of the agreements that it's signed, but you know, there's no mechanism for enforcing those on a superpower. Anybody less than a superpower you know, is, is required to maintain their agreements, uh, but not a superpower. <clears throat> you know, um, Rochelle, uh, our producer, has uh, typed out a question put, uh asked of our listener, Tim. Um, Tim wants to know, and I'm not sure of, of the question, how much of a factor is the presence of Nazis in Putin's war? I'm not sure which, what he's referring to there. Uh, sure, I can comment on that. Sure. Um, uh, in his justification for the invasion, uh, Putin made frequent references to the Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, and he's, he's arguing that he's going there to break the hold of the Nazis on the Ukrainian government. Um, <clears throat> and in one of the subtexts of, the, of the Russia's determination to, to crush the, the resistance in Mariupol, which went on for several months, was there was a unit called the Azov Brigade, which originally was an ultra-rightist Ukrainian nationalist militia which its defenders say purged itself of that ideological identification. But there, 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 there they were, the Azov Brigade um, did have this ultra-nationalist origins. And, you know, um, the resistance to, you know, the, the collaboration with the Nazi occupation of Ukraine, which was considerable in World War II, um, was uh, fascist in its orientation. So from a, from a Russian perspective, you know, uh, opposition in Ukraine to, to Russian dominance is equated with, with Nazis and Nazism. Of course, in the contemporary situation, Ukraine has evolved far beyond that. You know, as, as often pointed out, you know, Zelensky is Jewish. 
and his, his religious affiliation is well known in the country. He was elected president, a very popular president. Uh, I think his grandparents, I think, died in the Holocaust. Um, so it doesn't appear to obtain to modern Ukraine. But that rhetoric on the part of Putin was enormously effective inside Russia. And it raised, if you will, you know, the, the specter of the great patriotic war against fascism, which is still, you know, Russia's greatest triumph in the modern age is the defeat of Nazi Germany, for which it paid a horrific price of roughly 20 million dead. And so, you know, Putin was tapping into some very powerful ideological wellsprings and nationalist wellsprings in playing upon that ideology. In the West, it seemed almost a travesty, uh, uh, absurd. But in Russia itself, I think it resonated very deeply, very profoundly. You know, the uh, caller before that asked the question about um, uh, Biden going to uh, Saudi Arabia uh, brought to mind another question I've had, an observation anyway, uh, and that is that in the mainstream press, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major news networks and so on, uh, there's this continual refrain that this conflict, this war is a conflict of uh, democracy uh, versus autocracy or or authoritarianism, um, but yet Biden goes off to you know some of our allies, U.S. allies are are, are certainly authoritarian uh, autocrats, uh, dictatorships, and, and so on, uh, and it, it becomes at some level a a, a screen of a, a level of fog or haze that. Uh, you know, really shrouds what's really going on. Yeah, that's one of the many parallels between the old Cold War and the new. At the apex, you know, the United States is still, for the time being, formerly a democratic society. We are closely allied with the European nations, which are, you know, all of them formerly democratic. There are a few that are kind of have autocratic tendencies, but more or less that they're they're all democratic. So at the apex, you know, during the during the Cold War and today, it's the democracies versus the autocracies. Uh, back in the 1950s, it was Mao's China and Stalin's Russia versus a democratic Europe and a democratic United States. And then, as Europe decolonized and the, the Cold War extended into the Third World, the United States found it very convenient to put in military-dominated dictatorships across the Third World as an alternative to communist and populist politics. And so, yeah, there was always this contradiction in, in, the, during, in the old Cold War and in the new as well, as you pointed out, Alan, between the fact that the great democracies also have as kind of their anchor in the third world, these more autocratic kind of states exemplified today by Saudi Arabia. So that's, that's a continuity of, between the two Cold Wars. <clears throat> Al, do you have a sense of of the well negative effects or uh, unanticipated effects of U.S. sanctions of European sanctions on Russia, the, the, the impact that they're having elsewhere. Yeah, this is I, I, th this is why, for example, Africa is really cool to the calls for supporting Ukraine. Right? Um, uh, the the the. As I said earlier, Russia has been integrated into the global economy as a producer of raw materials. The world's largest exporter of fertilizer and wheat, the second largest producer of oil, the third largest producer of natural gas, right? And, <clears throat> and these embargoes have wreaked havoc, most particularly uh, Putin's naval blockade on, on Ukraine, particularly the port of Odessa, has blocked wheat exports, but there's also the, the U.S. financial embargo has complicated the insurance for Russian shipping of, of, of its wheat. And so uh, in, by the third month of the war, the head of the U.N., Antonio Guterres, was making public statements at food conferences about the impending food disaster. And even in March and April, he was talking about 270 million people worldwide 
moving towards starvation because of the disruption of the grain exports from Ukraine, <clears throat> which is one of the world's greatest breadbaskets, and Russia itself. Uh, and this has meant, you know, uh, enormous shortages of wheat, which is the basic carbohydrate and the basic staff of life, all the way across North Africa into the Middle East, and provides much of the, the carbohydrate for Sub-Saharan Africa as well. It's, it, this has been a profound disruption. Moreover, the, 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 the shifts in the global energy market that, the, you know, that Russia, Russia has been pretty skillful in adapting, shifting its oil exports to India and its, some of its gas exports to China, but it's been profoundly disruptive of the global energy market, meaning that there are escalating energy prices all around the world, you know, hammering urban consumers in Asia and Africa and Latin America that depend on gasoline for basic transport, urban transport. Um, so the disruption to the global economy has been profound. In the United States, we're, we're experiencing it here. One of the key drivers of our our, our soaring inflation is the cost of gasoline. Uh, you know, we're at five dollars a gallon uh, in most of America these days. You know, double what it was a couple of years ago, and this is a huge burden to ordinary working people who have to get in their cars and drive to sometimes two, if not three, jobs in different locations. And in order to make those make you know to clock in on time, they they're using their cars. Um, so. And you know this is this is enormously disruptive of the world economy, and as always happens, these disruptions move downward in the socioeconomic scale. So the bourgeoisie don't feel it at all. The middle class, you know, eats out less, doesn't take a vacation. But you move down the socioeconomic scale to the poor, and you're talking about misery, and you're talking about hunger, if not starvation, and that's something that the, you know, that the. <clears throat> that the G7 and the NATO powers have been very weak in dealing with. You know, they, um, one of the things they've done <clears throat> is they've talked about, the, the, the G7 talked about coming up with $600 billion in infrastructure development in order to compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative. But they offered a woefully inadequate supplement uh, for the, 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 the increased cost of grains for the Middle East and Africa, poor nations, that can't afford these high prices of grains, and that their cost is going to mean, you know, hunger, if not starvation, for, for 270 million people and rising. So the disruption to the global economy has been profound, and the sanctions have been a complicating factor in that disruption. We have a few minutes left, oh, about five minutes or so left in the hour if you want to get in quickly with a question or comment uh, for our guest today professor al mccoy gives a call at 608-256-2001 extension 9. alfred mccoy what's your prognosis that is uh, the effects of the war thus far we've touched on uh, but how it might end how it might end? Well, first of all, uh, NATO in that Madrid summit that we talked about earlier that was held just last month, June of 2022, talked about providing Ukraine with the weapons it needs for as long as it takes, okay? Uh, meaning as long as it takes, I assume, to, uh, to, to check Russia's attack and advance in Ukraine. I don't know if that also means for Ukraine to push Russia back to the lines that they the lines they had before the war erupted or to push Russians out of all Ukrainian territory. That's not clear. Uh, NATO did not clarify that point. All right. Um, and then uh, the West has talked about providing Ukraine with financial subsidies. The, the Ukraine's economy is, is basically collapsed. Its tax revenues are way down. Um, it needs a, a bailout package. So the West has talked about you know, backing Ukraine to the hill for the long term, all right? Uh, and uh, I, I think that's a position that is ultimately going to be unsustainable for two reasons. One, the, the damage to Ukraine of this fighting is enormous. The battlefield losses are rising. Um, the Russian 
strategy of attacking in these massive, incessant barrages of artillery and taking maybe a kilometer a day, a grinding, punitive advance, leaves behind both a, a ravaged urban infrastructure wherever it's applied, just completely decimates cities. Look at the photographs of Mariupol and other cities in the Donbass. You can see the extent of the damage. It's also punishing the Ukrainian army. Those soldiers are su suffering from something we haven't seen since World War One: shell shock, you know, from living and trying to survive under the pressure of these massive bombardments. Uh, and then the disruption to the global economy, the, the, the rising hunger that's come from, you know, depriving the world in a delicately balanced global food provisioning system of the disruption of, you know, not only, you know, the, the immediate wheat, but the fertilizer shipments that farmers around the world need to get a decent, decent harvest out of, out of the crops in, in the ground. Um, and, you know, at some point, these pressures within Ukraine and globally have got to rise to the surface. And, you know, there has to be some, some negotiated resolution of this conflict. The idea that this is going to grind on indefinitely is going to do untold damage to the very poorest of the poor around the world and is going to do, you know, very heavy damage to, to Ukraine itself. Uh, you know, um, so, you know, uh, I really, I, I think, you know, at some point there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement and the shape of that settlement will be some swaps of territory. I can't predict how that would come out. And then I think that, that, that in terms of Ukraine's position, Ukraine will adopt a position, I predict, akin to Austria's, which Austria is a member of the European Union, so it's an economic member of the European community, but it's not a member of NATO. Okay? And I think that's, that, that the Austrian solution could be applied readily to Ukraine. Well, Al, we're right down to the end of the hour. I want to thank you once again. I want to urge people to uh, check out uh, Professor McCoy's latest book, uh, To Govern the Globe. Uh, it's an important work, a, a masterful work. Alfred McCoy, I want to thank you very much. I want to thank Megan for engineering today, Rochelle for producing. And I got to go. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I want to, well, I'll be speaking with you next week. Thank you. <laughs>